This is Making Oprah Episode 2. Click. <laughs> Quick disclaimer here. There are some words in this podcast that may not be suitable for young ears. So if you're listening with children, please be warned. After the tone, please record your name and then press pound. WBEZ. You're now joining the meeting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, hello, Oprah. Good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Hey. This is Jen again, Jen White. Oh, oh hey, Jen. Hey. Thanks again for, for carving out a little more time for us. We appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. If you just, uh, did you have any breakfast this morning? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get some levels here. Mm-hmm. Did you? I had some bananas. I just had a little bite of banana. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It was that form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. All right. All right. We're ready, guys. All right. Sounds good. Uh, We're going to focus on some details that we didn't get into in our previous conversation. So let's get started. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jen White, and this is Making Oprah. This is part two of our podcast about the Oprah Winfrey Show, timed with the 30th anniversary of the show's national debut and the demolition of the show's home, Harpo Studios, here in Chicago. If you like big hair, shoulder pads, and 80s TV themes, you should really go back and listen to part one. In that episode, Oprah flew into Chicago, went national, and quickly dethroned her friendly daytime rival, Phil Donahue. We talked to him, too. Soon after the Oprah Winfrey show began, Oprah gained millions of loyal viewers with her honest, comfortable hosting style. But throughout the late 80s and early 90s, the show heavily relied on sensational, more tabloidy topics. Cheating husbands, racists, and murderers. Oh my. This wasn't yet the live your best life Oprah that we all know. And that's what this second episode is about. How the Oprah Winfrey show elevated itself out of the heap of trash TV to a show that intentionally embraced spirituality and positivity. And how the Oprah stage went from having too many skinheads to too many scented candles. So sit back, live your best life, and listen to a public radio podcast about daytime TV. See, when I got the job, I was just happy to be on television and to be a host. And so I thought I was going to be on television. I'd go visit schools and people say, oh, you that lady who be on TV. Yeah, I be on TV. You were making $100,000. Now you're making $250,000. You're moving on up. I'd gone to Marshall Fields and I hired a decorator. (laughs) Very exciting. (laughs) From the home department at Marshall Fields. And I'd spend $40,000 on my entire living room furniture. It's like, oh, my God, I have made it. So you're just moving on up. By the mid-80s, Oprah has her own self-named talk show. She's a national celebrity. She has an Oscar nomination. She's making serious money. And she's moved into a lakefront condo on Michigan Avenue. It's a marbled penthouse with a panoramic view of the Chicago skyline. By all accounts, she's made it. But then there were some specific episodes and moments in the Oprah Winfrey show's early years that made Oprah rethink what it meant to be the face of this hit show. They were episodes where Oprah and her staff succeeded, stumbled, and failed. And those pivotal moments built the show's foundation for decades. It was during those shows where I just thought, what are we doing? 
This is a platform that's speaking to people. And what are we saying? The first episode we're going to look at was Oprah's first show filmed outside of Chicago. And it tackled something big. Hello, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey. And we watched with the rest of the world the news stories generated from this county. We watched as thousands of people in this town walked in two marches for brotherhood and heard the chants of nigger go home. And so we decided, The Oprah Winfrey Show, to come here and talk with the people of this county ourselves. In 1912, in Forsyth County, Georgia, there was a case of attempted rape and a case of rape and murder of two different white women. A group of black men were blamed for the attacks. A lynch mob attacked and killed one of the accused, and two black teenagers were hanged in public executions. Then, groups of white men, calling themselves the Night Riders, terrorized the black community, forcing hundreds of African Americans out of Forsyth County. It's been called the largest case of black expulsion in American history. And Forsyth County remained all white into the 80s. This is the beginning of the white civil rights movement. In this- In 1987, timed with the first annual celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, civil rights marches challenged the whiteness of Forsyth County and the continued intimidation of the few African Americans in the community. It grew into the largest civil rights protest in the U.S. since 1970. The demonstrations and counter-demonstrations turned Forsyth County into a huge news story. The Oprah Winfrey Show went down to Georgia just five months after their national debut. It was, to say the least, a bold move, and it would test the young producer's idea of what daytime television could do. But the decision to film a show in such a tense situation was partly to do with the timing. It was February, and February meant sweeps. It was when the number of viewers were measured and ad rates were set, so daytime talk would clamor for attention and get particularly sensational. So the Forsyth County episode was born out of both the real desire to tackle a serious issue and the real need for must-see television. You know, I went there beforehand in order to secure a location. Executive producer Debbie DeMeo. And I went to my hotel room and the phone rang. And it was a man and he said, This is the clan. We're going to kill you. Click. So I put the furniture up against the door of the hotel room and just proceeded. We've got a show to do. I don't really care. So no fear? No, I do not. You know, we were operating in quite the bubble. There was no fear. I mean, Oprah would preach on a daily basis. There are only two emotions, love or fear. And we weren't feeling the fear. There are only two emotions, love and fear. This phrase is one of a handful of mantras that we've heard several times from both Oprah and her staff in making this series. You'll hear more of them throughout this show. These ideas were deeply embedded in Oprah's worldview, and Oprah passed them on to the producers and wove them into the show's culture. Anyway, back to Georgia. I was actually afraid in Forsyth County. I remember being flying in on a little Learjet and being told I should get out of town before dark and taking that very seriously. Who told you that? Um, the, the, the word was you, you don't want to be in this town after dark because there are enough people who are upset about you coming. So now, I listen, Maya always says when people tell you who they are, believe them. Why is it that there are people in this county, obviously, who are afraid 
of black people. What is it you are afraid black people are going to do? I mean, that's what I'd like to know. I'm, I'm afraid of uh, them coming to Versailles County. I lived down There's Atlanta. a moment where you're speaking to a gentleman in the audience, yeah. and he's attempting to explain to you the difference between a black person. And a nigger. That's the one. Yeah. I was genuinely, at the time, interested in knowing what makes a person think I'm a nigger. How does your mind work? The entire black race? Blacks and you have niggers. What's the difference between I've a black talked, person and a nigger to you? I've talked to black people. Black people, they don't want to come up here. They, want to, they, they don't want to cause any trouble. That's a black person. A nigger wants to come up here and cause trouble all the time. That's the difference. Here you have a largely hostile audience, candidly and unapologetically expressing deeply racist views on camera to a black host. The audience doesn't even seem to see Oprah as a black woman, even when she reminds them that she is. She's just the host, in control and confidently moving through the all-white audience, mic in hand. Do I understand you've been here less than two years? There are many well, people... you may speak for Excuse me, in this room. But let her speak. Let her speak. Thank you. Black me said it. <laughs> Executive producer Debbie DeMeo. It was a startling experience. To be there with her, with that audience, was startling enough. But then to walk outside and to be faced with what seemed like 50 or 60 journalists, news crews, cameras flashing, it made worldwide headlines. And it was a turning point for what we knew we were able to do and to expose. And so it was almost like a recognition of a newfound power and that we had to hold that newfound power in our hands very gently and really, really think about it. The Oprah Winfrey Show returned to Chicago. The rest of the week featured women who kill, religious fundamentalists, drag queens, and sexy clothes. But the Forsyth County episode was a big deal. The L.A. Times gushed that Forsyth County was, quote, great TV and great Oprah. Chicago Sun-Times critic Robert Feeder wrote, quote, Oprah served up an hour of sensational television about an explosive issue while generating tons of publicity. I actually for a long time thought that through the process of conversation, I could break down barriers of racism or homophobia or ideas that people had that were, you know, discriminatory toward other people. And it was the revelatory moment with the skinheads, actually, on the show, that I realized the power of the platform. February sweeps period, 1988. Oprah versus skinheads. My guests today call themselves skinheads. They say their heads are shaved for battle and that they must save the white race from communists and homosexuals. If Forsyth County counted as a big win in what the Oprah Winfrey show was able to expose, the skinheads episode was racked up as a definite loss. You said, let me let, I, I just heard what you said. You just said, I don't sit with monkeys. You think because she's black, because I'm black, we're, we're, we're monkeys? Is that? That's a proven fact. That's a proven fact? <laughs> it's a proven fact that I'm a monkey? Well, it could be. But, you know, <laughs> you know, go ahead, go first ahead. First thing I want to get off my mind is... Hey, no, I want to talk about this monkey you know, stuff. These skinheads... Yeah, right, 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 right. Everybody's 
if everybody, we don't want any red scum like you in America. If everybody's going to talk at one time, nobody's going to be heard. I support blacks. Sit down. Sit down. I'll take a break. I'll be right back. During a commercial break, I saw them signaling each other with their hands and making signs and saying, yeah, get her and that kind of thing. I went, whoa, I think I'm doing one thing. I think I'm exposing them. I think I'm showing them and their vitriol and their dark side and trying to get them to see a different point of view. And they are using me. How did that feel? It was a huge revelation. Like, whoa, I think I'm doing good here and I'm not. This energy is going out into the world, and I am the one who is responsible for that. Oprah's agenda for this show was hijacked. She'd lost control, and she walked off stage determined that it would never happen again. I went to the producers after that show and said, this is it for me. I will not be used by anybody again for presenting darkness in the world. But the Pandora's box of daytime trash TV was wide open, and other new hosts were perfectly willing to engage in the dark arts. Thank you. Our guests that you'll meet today are truly hate-filled. They are self-described racists, white supremacists. So following the success of your show, we see this enormous batch of other talk shows in the 90s. How do you think the Oprah Winfrey show influenced the creation of those shows? Well... I've kept journals through this entire, you know, evolving of the Oprah show. So I actually have in a journal that I ran across recently how I was feeling the pressure of Geraldo Rivera. He says the Holocaust doesn't Should we be frightened by his appalling ignorance? Or should we be angered? 30 million people, Or should we be angered? In the November sweeps period of 1988, the year-old Geraldo Rivera show repeated what Oprah had done with the skinheads, except this time they had the skinheads on stage with anti-racist activists. It didn't really work out. A huge fight starts on stage. Chairs and punches are thrown between the guests and the host. After a commercial break, Geraldo returns with a broken nose. Only slightly the worse for the wear. <laughs> We're back. Uh, the uh, skinheads have been, uh, well, the racist skinheads have been cleared. The ratings of the Geraldo versus skinheads episode went through the roof. In the beginning, I thought, wow, that's going to really affect our viewership. After Geraldo, there were literally hundreds of other shows. If you've watched any television at all, you know it's nothing if not a medium of imitation. Just think about the number of sitcoms about four white friends trying to make it in the big city or households with a gruff but lovable dad. And back then, Oprah was doing really well, so TV executives were eager to break the code of her success. I could see they were trying to figure it out. So a couple of times there were African-American women. A couple of times there were African-American women who were overweight. I know they were sitting around and now understanding how corporate America works. I know they're like, well, is it the fact that she's fat? Is it the fact that she's black? Is it the fact that her hair is this way? What do you think it is? 
In the late 80s and early 90s, TV execs salivated at the money Oprah was reeling in with her tens of millions of daily viewers. So the cluster jam of daytime hosts began. Sally Jesse Raphael was expanded from a half hour to an hour. There was the debut of Oprah protege Ricky Lake. There was Montel Williams and Jenny Jones. It was also the start of Maury Povich. And of course, Jerry Springer. Frankly, I don't know how anyone with the saxophone wasn't employed in the early 90s. Was there pressure internally to match that tone to stay competitive? No. <laughs> so we didn't pay attention. Alan Rackadin was a founding producer of The Oprah Winfrey Show. I don't think I've ever seen a full hour of any other talk show that was on the air during the time we were on. In an industry filled with imitators, The Oprah Winfrey Show made a very deliberate decision to ignore their competitors. But there was, I think, over 200 talk shows that came and went during the period of The Oprah Show. It wasn't like we had a bank of televisions up with all the different shows up, which is a lot of people do. We weren't getting like the listings to see what all those other shows were doing and saying, oh my gosh, on Wednesday, they're doing this, we should do this. We just didn't do that. We just did our thing. And how did the Oprah Winfrey show ignore what other shows were doing? The short answer? Blinders. I learned the greatest lesson of any competitor or anybody who's in business and pass that on to the rest of my staff. And that is you can only run your own race. You can only run your own race. Remember when we told you about how Oprah passed these big ideas onto her staff? This is another one. Run your own race. Stay in your lane. Most every producer we talked to said some variation of it. Oprah always said it's a horse race. Don't look at what everyone else is doing. And we really We're in a horse race. When you're a horse in a race, you run your own look race. Look straight ahead because those who turn around to see what the other horses are doing usually don't fall look off. sideways. You don't look back. You don't look at the other horses. You just run your race. You do you. Let them do them. We do us. You know, sort of before it was a famous saying, you do you, let your own, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was very clear when I started. I got clearer as I continued, but I was very clear that the purpose of the show was to be a light in the world and that the mission statement, we're here to uplift, enlighten, encourage, and entertain, that that had to be real. Now, it wasn't until 1989 that I clarified that to the point where you cannot bring me a show that does not fit the mission. What happened in 1989, I hear you ask? The show produced an episode that, intentionally or not, ran them way out of their lane. It it was a spiritual awakening for me. The 1989 episode in question was called something like... Husbands who cheat on their wives. And there was, you know, a booking coup, meaning, like, kudos, like, fantastic. They got the wife and the husband and the girlfriend to come on all at the same time. And we're talking about affairs. On that show, I asked the husband a question. I can't remember what the question was. And... He said, oh, my girlfriend's pregnant right now. 
just to be clear, they've got the husband and the wife and the husband's girlfriend on stage. The husband announces his girlfriend is pregnant. The wife had no idea. And it was bad. Producer Ellen Rackadin. I mean, for people watching, they might have thought it was great television, but we felt awful. It was awful. The look on his wife's face to this day, to this day, I will never forget. And what happened to that woman on that stage? I said, that will not happen to me again. I will never be put in a position again where I cause that kind of humiliation and that kind of harm to another human being. I, I, I just won't do it. And if I have to do it, I will get out of this business. And I started thinking about, okay, well, what will I do? Okay, I could go into PR. I could be really good at that. <laughs> I could do. I started thinking about other things I could do. So when I started saying to not just management, but to King World and to the affiliates, I'm going to take the high road. They were like, well, you can take the high road, but don't tell anybody you're taking the high road. Why are you telling people you're taking the high road? And so we made an internal decision that we didn't want to make people feel that way, that we still could do shows on, you know, people that weren't, you know, being faithful and infidelity and all that, but not do an ambush. For the Oprah Winfrey show, the cheating husband's episode was a turning point, but it certainly wasn't a vow of chastity. The next half decade of Oprah would continue to feature plenty of sensational topics, but at least now they were aware of a line that they wouldn't cross. No humiliating the guests, no ambushes, no racist free-for-alls. Coming up on Making Oprah, we leave the 80s behind, Oprah completely takes the reins, and the show is finally elevated to what Oprah describes as the high road. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Every day Chicago is seeing a different Chicago. This is a promotional theme song from the early 80s for WLS, ABC Channel 7 in, you guessed it, Chicago. And we're on your side, Chicago. So far in making Oprah, every show that we've heard was produced at WLS in a pretty standard local news TV station with pretty standard local news TV station rules. Despite how successful the Oprah Winfrey show was, they were limited. The staff saw Oprah become frustrated with what she could and couldn't do, even the small stuff. Producer and publicist Alice McGee. And she had a puppy. And they said, you know, sorry, you know, we can't have dogs in the building. There was a treadmill. Sorry, we can't have treadmills in the building. And again, at the time, I think if they had to revisit history, they would have said, have whatever you want, put a freaking gym in, you know. So so it kind of bugged her, those little things. But they did plant the seeds of ownership. WLS was wonderful. They didn't know, you know, what they had. But it was just she was not, in, you know, your typical WLS employee or even talent. She was, you know, lightning in a bottle. I did not feel welcome at the WLS offices. Hmm. I've never talked about it before because I didn't want it to be misinterpreted. But since it's my own voice 
This is the interpretation. You know, you could just sense it. I, I was not welcome in the building. Other people felt threatened by the Oprah show, even though we had our little corner office and, you know, we didn't make a lot of noise, but we were not the news. And I could feel that from people. So just getting in an elevator with other people in the building felt uncomfortable. I felt I had to be apologetic. You know, I felt I had to make myself smaller in that space. And so when I had the opportunity to, number one, own the show, but most importantly, move to another building, that's why I did it. I just wanted to get out of the building. In 1986, she formed her own company, Harpo. Harpo being Oprah spelled backwards. You might remember the end credit jingle here. Then came 1988, the Oprah Winfrey Show's third season and a big year for Oprah. The show won its second Emmy, Oprah was named Broadcaster of the Year, and she amassed enough money to completely wrestle ownership of the show from WLS. Oprah spent $20 million to buy and renovate a new 88,000-square-foot facility in what at the time was a rundown industrial area west of downtown Chicago. By the launch of her fourth season in 1990, Oprah became the first African-American to own a TV and film production company, the first woman to own and produce her own talk show, and the third woman ever to own her own studio, producer Alice McGee. You saw the dream, just even, you know, first we saw it in the ratings, we saw it in the show getting bigger, and here was a a physical manifestation of that dream. Sure enough, that Harpo is amazing. Executive producer Debbie DeMeo. It was sort of like being a renter versus an owner. At WLS, we were renting the studio, and we tried to make it fit for what the show had become. But at the Oprah Winfrey Show Harpo Studios, it was amazing. There was a marble staircase in the control room. We got to customize the control room to our heights and what monitors we wanted to look at. It was, it was studio heaven. In 1990, Harpo Studios was a brand new facility to churn out shows. They'd had a moment of soul-searching with the Affair Ambush show, but as they continued to conquer daytime TV, they kept trafficking in the standard sensational daytime TV stuff. Here's some shows from that period. I Hate Your Interracial Relationship, Pathological Liars Confess, Threesomes, Wife Beaters, Shopaholics, So this isn't live your best life television yet, but it's very highly rated television reeling in wagons of cash. Thank you. Thank you. In the early 90s, Oprah's at the highest rating she'll ever get, with 12 to 13 million viewers on an average day, just a few years after she struck out on her own. I wanted to show you our new set, but what's most important to to all of us who work on the show, and especially to me, is to be able to thank you personally for the past seven years of this show. I can tell you really straight from my heart that I'm more excited about being here today than even the first day this show debuted nationally back in September of 1986. The Oprah Winfrey Show is now a giant corporate machine, or at least the baby version of the giant corporate machine that would eventually build around the Oprah brand. And that means it's time for a new theme song. I love the song so much, mainly because I feel like I'm every woman, that we made it our new Oprah Winfrey Show theme song!
Along with the physical expansion, new digs, better equipment, Herpel began expanding the staff. The team of a handful of producers that scrambled for guests and joked around with each other backstage gave way to something bigger and newer. Producer Alice McGee. We lost a little bit of that mom-and-pop shop as you become a department store, but we tried to retain it as best we could. As the show grew, when we talked to some other folks, they, they talk about this intimate group of people passing, you know, post-it notes to one another oh, about show ideas. Constantly. Were you able to maintain that same connection with one another? No. With every single, you know, big move, big move. She couldn't be friends with everybody. We, you know, totally blurred the line of authority, you know, when in the early days. She could not possibly be a CEO and maintain that. Hit people going in and borrowing her jewelry because <laughs> the guests turned out really cute. We couldn't retain that. It was perfect for what it was, and it, it, it proceeded at a pace that was also meant to be. I hired a group of people who wanted to do all that they could and would do what it takes to be successful. In the early 90s, executive producer Debbie DeMeo fostered a tough competitive work environment. It wasn't a work culture. It was a lifestyle. It's what we did when we woke up in the morning until we went to sleep at night. It was our life. It was our youth. I have a firm belief that for something to be that successful, that's what it requires. It's tough to be a producer at the Oprah Winfrey Show. It's really tough. Mike Mabbitt was a senior post-production editor who started with Harpo in 1990. His edit booth became a place for the producers to vent. Early on, the, the joke was there was a coup a minute. Just the power struggles going on. Just, I mean, I don't want to get into that too much. Sure. I mean, it was, it, it, that's kind of normal for very powerful people. You had a lot of powerful people there. And each had their idea of what the Oprah Winfrey show meant to them. Producers at Harpo fumed that Debbie DeMeo, though extremely talented, worked people too hard. Media commentators at the time called DeMeo a tyrant and a dictator. In June 1994, Oprah had a tough conversation with her executive producer and friend, the woman who brought her to Chicago. Debbie was given a multi-million dollar settlement to make a clean break with the show. And today, she doesn't have any hard feelings. I had so many experiences that were so superlative and exhilarating that it kind of wiped out anything that was negative. Okay. New building. New set. New theme song. Highest ratings ever. Money pouring in. And then Oprah decides to completely change the show's direction. I I would just say it was... It was an evolution. Diane Hudson had been with the Oprah Winfrey Show since the national launch. But eight years later, she got a big promotion and she took over the helm from Debbie DeMeo. Oprah, kind of in the same window, asked me to be executive producer and also announced that from here forward, we were going to change the types of shows that we did, that she wanted to be a force for good, you know, not just do no harm. I remember saying, okay, you know, I'm totally into that, but we're like number one. And (laughs) do we still have to be number one if we change over the shows? Of course we still have to be number one. (laughs) What do you mean? Everybody! Good morning. Good afternoon. Hello. 
Season 9, 1994, Oprah turned 40. Speaking from experience, this is a time when you might reassess your life a bit. Oprah told Entertainment Weekly, quote, I've been guilty of doing trash TV and not even thinking it was trash. I don't want to do it anymore. I cannot listen to other people blaming their mothers for another year. At 40 years old, y'all know I'm 40. Uh, could we hear it anymore? I finally learned to swim. I had been afraid of the water. But beyond learning how to swim, an older, wiser Oprah was growing in more intangible ways, looking around for some deeper meaning in her life. And she discovered a book that, besides the Bible, would become her favorite book of all time. So I'd read this book called uh, Seed of the Soul. I read that book. I called up Gary Zukav. I had to spell my name because he didn't have a television and didn't know who I was, <laughs> which was actually thrilling. <laughs> the H is silent. You'd say, what is it again? O-P-R-A-H. Oprah? Oprah? No, the H is silent. And so I called him up and had a conversation, then asked him to come on the show. Gary Zukoff is a Harvard graduate turned quantum physicist turned psychologist who blended Eastern wisdom with modern science. After Oprah discovered his work, Gary Zukoff would appear on the show 35 times, more than any other guest. According to Gary Zukoff, our intention, what we intend towards others, is the single most powerful energy in our lives. Here's the intention. There's the effect. You exploit the world and you experience being exploited. In this appearance on the show, Gary Zukov demonstrates the principle of intention to Oprah using one of those contraptions with the metal balls that click back and forth. Do you see? I, I see. Wherever the inten- whoever sets the intention experiences the effects of that intention. And you can never have an intention without an effect. Precisely. Yes. Understanding, fully understanding that principle, that's the biggest aha of my life, actually. Aha! That's the way life works. Gary Zukov defines intention as a fundamentally creative act. It's the conscious quality that enters any action, which then changes the effect. So, if you create something like a daytime talk show, for instance, with a consciously positive and inspiring intention, then that will be felt in the results. As with other principles, love versus fear, staying in your own lane... Oprah passed the principle of intention onto her staff, only this time it was formally ingrained into production. Executive producer Diane Hudson. And now the shift was to to intentionally, intentionally go there, you know, talk about things like intention and karma and decisions and choices and love versus fear. All of those words became a part of our planning process, our creative process. There was a very, very specific time when we did show ideas. Founding producer Ellen Rackadin. We wrote down our show ideas, we submitted them, and we, they went into a packet, and Oprah reviewed them, and yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then there became a point in time that there was a form, a show idea form, and on it, it said intention. So what was your intention? I said to the producers, Do not bring me any show that you do not have a clear, motivated intention in producing. And when you bring me the show, I have to find for myself a thread of truth so that I can hold myself in the center of that. So I can do a lot of crazy things. I can interview 
you know, we're running out and doing this day and that day and swinging from poles and chandeliers. But I got to find some center of truth where I can be my honest, truthful self in it. And then I can do other things. And for a long time, I really didn't know what she meant. Lisa Erspalmer was a producer hired around the time these changes were introduced. I didn't really get it. Now, after a bunch of years, I, I did get it. But she really always wanted us to have a reason. So, like, my answer would be, like, because it's fun, <laughs> you know? And she's <laughs> like, well, that's, that's not a reason necessarily to do it. The hard part about doing the Oprah show was that we were trying to do two things, right? Create compelling television that people wanted to watch and then create television with intention. And those don't always overlap. Were you worried the audience might not follow you? I wasn't, I wasn't worried and never worried about the audience because the audience from the beginning was following me and my instincts about what my truth was and what we, what we as a show wanted to present as the truth. And I felt that as long as I'm true to myself, there will be somebody who will relate to that. With the announcement of this new Oprah Winfrey show, there was a noticeable dip in the ratings. By now, there were 18 other shows on air competing for attention. Oprah's protege, Ricky Lake, soared to number two with shows like Surprise, I Want to Sleep With You, and Daughters Who Date Older Men and The Moms Who Can't Stop Them. And the Oprah Winfrey show, with shows like Keeping a Child Safe Home and Stopping Gossip, their daily viewership fell from around 12 million to 9 million. But Oprah and her team kept working to perfect this new incarnation of daytime television. And if you watch shows from this era, you can see them trying to find strategies to stage positivity while still creating captivating television. As uh, we went on the air here live in Chicago, a terrorist bomb exploded in a federal office building in downtown Oklahoma City. One strategy? They tackled emotional interviews around national tragedies. After the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, Oprah interviewed the last survivor pulled from the wreckage, a 15-year-old girl fighting for her life in a hospital bed. Brandy, this is Oprah. Say, you hear me, open your eyes now. I came to see you and to tell you that you are a trooper girl. And the show took a far more positive approach when they tackled big social issues. In 1996, they featured a show on the Little Rock Nine, the nine African-American students who had been sent to integrate an Arkansas high school in 1957. I often in speeches say that people who've come before me were the bridges that I crossed over on. And the Little Rock Nine was a big bridge for me because had that not happened, what happened in television 15, 20 years later could not have happened. Oprah brought the white student, now grown up, who had bullied the Little Rock Nine into the studio to ask the African-American students for forgiveness. So you came here today, what? Do you? I am genuinely sorry for any negative things that I did at that time. I was really acting as a child that was not prepared. And another new powerful strategy for making positive and captivating television, big emotional surprises for unsuspecting members of the Oprah Winfrey Show audience. On Mother's Day, Oprah surprised a couple who were eagerly awaiting the arrival of twin babies they'd adopted from India. Brent is here with your babies. Brent, come on out and see your babies. Happy Mother's Day to you. And if you're looking for big surprises, 
How about a surprise wedding? Happy Valentine's Day, y'all. Then, Robin Donna, by the power vested in me through the state of Illinois and the county of Cook, it is my privilege to pronounce to you and to Oprah and the world the new Mr. and Mrs. Rob <laughs> Stapleton, husband and wife. Whoa! It's our first wedding! Then the Oprah Winfrey Show did something so positive, so well-intentioned, it seemed, well, doomed. It was the idea of longtime producer Alice McGee, and it wasn't the most well-received pitch. And I said to her one day, I said, okay, this sounds crazy, but what if we tried to do it just for one segment, you know, like a book club, like a meeting where you announce a book, and then the next month we, we talk about it because we love talking about books. And she howled. And then she says, all right, we'll think about it. We'll think about it. We'll think about it for you, Alice. We'll think about it. So basically, Alice's big idea was to say to this audience of millions, hey, we're all going to read a book together. Then later, you're going to watch us talk about it. Doesn't that sound like fun? But Oprah did think about it over the summer. Then, on September 17th, 1996, Oprah's book club was launched. Okay, this is one of my all-time favorite moments I'm having on television right now. You are witnessing it. And what we want to do is start a book club here on The Oprah Show. And I want to get the whole country reading again. Those of you who haven't been reading, I think books are important. Again, Alice McGee. I think probably out of 25 years of her on the air was my favorite moment in a lifetime when she said, our next book is Song of Solomon. And she said it like someone calling the, you know, a game in the last final moments of a Hail Mary pass. And the book is Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Gives me goosebumps because of her natural enthusiasm. What a great milestone in terms of just talk show, you know, merging, you know, the literary and the fact that Toni Morrison got that. I mean, and she said that she sold more books than when she had the Nobel Prize. And it was just what a, like, grateful moment we all had there, you know. Here's where to write Oprah's Book Club, Chicago 60661. Or you can write us at America Online, those of you who know how to do that, using the keyword Oprah. <laughs> Oprah. When Oprah endorsed a book, the author's sales skyrocketed. Song of Solomon's author, Toni Morrison, called Oprah's book club a reading revolution. According to some estimates, over 50 million books have been sold since they were selected by Oprah and promoted on her show. But now, Oprah's surprisingly analytical about the power of her endorsement. She's even broken down the numbers for herself. The books and the ability to, you know, that's just about platform. That's about reach. So if you have 10 million people listening to you at any given time, about a million of them will respond to whatever you're saying. If it means I want to buy something, I want to get something, I should hear this thing, I should go to this location, whatever. About 10% is what I just instinctively started to figure out. So I started choosing books based on, I like it, will a million other people like it? Oprah's audience had been in a decade-long relationship with her. And over that decade, they'd built a lot of trust. They trusted her voice, her opinion, and her taste. So starting with the book club, Oprah is able to turn herself into a big arrow, an arrow that's able to point her audience towards things that she thinks will enrich their lives. And where that arrow points... The audience follows. I'll never forget, we did a simple home decorating show. Producer Ellen Rackadin. And one of the tips was, to make your home smell pretty, take lavender oil and put it on your light bulb. Well, a house burned down. 
And so the, the viewer did not follow directions, I would like to say, you know, and then the beef trial and, you know, different things. But we realized the level of responsibility that we had. A house fire is really bad. But I want to go on to another much bigger thing that Ellen mentioned, the beef trial. This is one example of how the Oprah butterfly could flap its wings and unleash a storm. We came up with this. We were at lunch the other day talking about the trial and decided we wanted to have a little fun with this. In this news report from 1998, a Texas printer shows off the hundreds of buttons that he's made that show Oprah's face with a red line across it. To show that not, uh, not everybody thinks Oprah Winfrey uh, has got this right. During a show in April 1996, at the height of the mad cow disease scare, Oprah and a guest talked negatively about beef. After the broadcast, cattle prices dropped to near 10-year lows, and ranchers blamed their losses on Oprah. Oprah was sued by Texas cattlemen seeking $11 million in damages. It was a long legal battle, and Oprah was forced to relocate her show to Texas during the five-week trial. In the end... Oprah was found not liable. There were people who said I would not be able to get a fair trial in Texas, but you proved them wrong! Oprah sees the beef trial as a defining moment in how she thought of herself and the show. Here she is in 2001, talking about sitting on the witness stand, being questioned by the cattleman's attorney. This is from an unaired Q&A session the show posted online. He's standing up there and he's saying, and you're pretty influential, aren't you? When you announce the book, people go and read that book, don't they? Okay? Because don't you have a book club and about a million people read the book, don't they? And he goes, so when you sat there and you said what you said about beef, you knew you were destroying my clients. <laughs> you know why? Because you're a manipulator and you're a liar and you're a... So, right, so I realized, okay, he's calling me out. He's calling me out. But I realized sitting there that this is not who I am. This is not I am. I am not a manipulator. I'm not a liar. I did not say that to destroy the beef industry and his clients and whatever. And so I just got really calm and I thought, this is not who I am. And I got it in that moment. It was the Oprah effect on trial. That's what people call it. The audience's response to what Oprah said or endorsed. Oprah called it free speech. Now, if you ask Oprah about the Oprah effect, she says she's not that interested in how she impacted what got bought or sold. What she really wants to talk about is how she changed people's lives. So the, the Oprah effect, being able to get people to respond to things in a, in, in a commercial kind of way, meaning buying things, does not compare to the daily impact and the shift that occurred in the way women in particular saw themselves. This shift in consciousness that happened led by the teachings, information, and connection that was offered on a daily basis on The Oprah Show cannot be measured. Coming up on Making Oprah, Oprah makes the case to the American public that inside each and every one of us, there's a spirit. Not everybody's buying it. Thanks. 
Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Today, we start a weekly course that I know can change your life. Changing your life comes in little epiphanal moments. Finding personal success, you can do it. To create personal success, you just have to In 1998, the Oprah Winfrey Show began marketing itself as Change Your Life Television. The show began featuring more New Age writers, spiritual counselors, and life coaches. This was intentionally positive TV on hyperdrive, with a much more explicit focus on turning inward. And this is part of your issue, Debbie. This is your issue, honey. This is it. You don't want to go there. The phrase, change your life, was all over the show. Oprah was very excited about this new, explicitly spiritual format. But this rebranding started raising a lot of eyebrows, and it spooked news directors at the local affiliate stations that were airing the show. It's Change Like TV, and it's about to begin next. Executive producer Diane Hudson. Most of the news directors were like, what are you doing? You know, you're going to ruin all our ratings, and this isn't going to work. We're feeling it. Have you found your spirit? If housework is drudgery, if your workplace is too stressful, if you have no time for yourself how you can turn your life around, too. As a part of Change Your Life Television, the show began introducing a regular segment called Remembering Your Spirit. Hope you take time to remember your spirit. Next. So when we started Remembering Your Spirit, especially, was just something we were doing at the end of every show. We had a maybe three, four-minute piece that just highlighted somebody doing something on a higher level. And I started with just being willing to be thankful. Taking care of a sick friend, taking in a a homeless child, or, you know, lots of different examples. But that word spirit just seemed to throw everybody. Our spirit is what drives us to do the things that we we dream of doing. Motherhood is sacred. Everything about motherhood is sacred. And so from news directors and viewers alike, we got questions like, what, are you doing religion now? Because like, you know, I don't know, it was supposed to be like separation of religion and talk show. (laughs) And we just, you know what we did? We just held our ground. When things are very down and things are very bleak and things are very sad, the daffodils are blooming again and they come back. And my life is in the process of, of coming back. Several producers told us they weren't too fond of the Remembering Your Spirit segment. They worried that the Oprah show was becoming a parody of itself. Okay, light the candles. There's the woman on a swing. Shot of someone looking out the window. Three, two, one. Cut to a woman in a field. Eventually, Oprah stepped in and issued a candle moratorium. Yeah, I don't want to see another candle shot with a person walking through the grass and the leaves in the background. But... (laughs) We were trying to give a visual interpretation of what it means to be spiritual. And I remember doing a show with Carolyn Mays, who wrote a book called The Anatomy of Spirit. The spirit is an alive force. So if you don't get that, if you don't accept the fact that we are mind, 
body and spirit, then none of this makes any sense. Local stations weren't the only ones puzzled by this new spiritual bent. The loyal audience wasn't really getting it either. During this 1998 show with spiritual writer Carolyn Mace, it all came to a head. So I could see that the audience was becoming listless and glazed over. They were like, what is going on here? So I stopped the show. In the middle of the show, I stopped it and said, hey, what's going on here? We are more than our physical body. And when I was growing up... Do you all think that? How many of you... How many of you think that? Or how many of you are just not quite sure yet? Who's not sure yet, if you are? You're not sure? And someone stood up and said, I don't know what you're talking about, spirit. What do you mean, spirit? Are you talking Jesus? Are you talking disciples? What do you mean, spirit? And I said, no, I'm not talking religion. We're talking about your spirit. You know, your spirit. And this woman said, no, I don't know. And then everybody else in the audience started nodding. What are you talking about? So spirit is a foreign concept Spirit is a foreign concept sort of to uh, away from me or more religious. Spirit is religious. To me. To you. I think of that. And you know that that is precisely, I think, why we're getting a lot of criticism this year. Well, not a lot. I went, whoa, you know, so okay. Have, uh, we've been talking about remembering your spirit, and people don't even know they have one. So, <laughs> so that also changed my approach to remembering your spirit. Like, it's not a religious thing. It's the essence of who you are. It's the you, capital Y, of who you are is how I ended up trying to explain it to people. So you can kind of think of this as the college years of The Oprah Winfrey Show, that time when you break free and really start exploring new territory, not just carving out your own identity, but also discovering new ideas that might not be altogether comfortable to people who've known you for a long time. Change Your Life TV was freshman year. You know, a little awkward. Enthusiasm for the Oprah Winfrey show was dropping, and making matters worse, Oprah's status as America's number one talk show host was slipping. American TV was getting even more crowded, and shows on the low road were becoming more and more popular. For 25 straight weeks in 1999, Jerry Springer was beating her in the ratings. Oprah called Springer a, quote, vulgarity circus, Referencing a Springer show where a guest pulled down his pants, Oprah added, I can understand how you can get beaten in the ratings. I'm introducing books. They've got penises. In 1999, Comedy Central debuted The Man Show, where co-hosts Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla opened their show with this manifesto. That's very nice, but we're not here for applause. We're here because we have a serious problem in this country, and her name is Oprah. Millions and millions of women are under Oprah's spell. She tells them what to read, what to eat, what to think, what to do. We're the ones that are supposed to be telling them what to do, right? (laughs) Enough is enough. The Oprahization of America must be stopped. The Man Show cast itself as satire, a kind of counter-Oprah Winfrey show for stereotypical men. But by now, The Oprah Winfrey Show had become an essential part of American feminine identity. Here you had a successful woman in charge of her own show, controlling her own message to a huge audience, a powerful woman who told women to be empowered and get in touch with their feelings. 
The Man Show wasn't far off from much of the other criticism that the Oprah Winfrey Show began receiving. The New York Times called Oprah's Change Your Life TV a, quote, psycho-spiritual reformation in which any attempt to entertain has been abandoned in favor of a search for truth, wellness, and reduced fat snacks that still satisfy. At this point, the show really has two choices. They go back to what they know works, the stuff they know the audience loves, or they double down, adjust those blinders, and stay in the lane they've chosen. Oprah chose the latter. By now, the Oprah Winfrey show had entered a realm beyond daytime. They were trying to shape a new space. Oprah was working to lead an awakening among millions of women, not one just about spirituality, but about what it meant to be a woman. And in one episode about priorities, that became crystal clear. We were doing a show about where you are on your list. So we did the thing. Everybody, every woman in the audience is going to make the list of your priorities. And then we asked, where are you on that list? Most of the women in that audience in the 90s were either not on the list or last on the list. That was just the conditioning that we had as women people. There was a cultural idea that unless you're last on the list, then you are selfish. On this episode, the show's guest was life coach Cheryl Richardson. I remember so distinctly the moment Cheryl said, you should be first on the list. And women started booing. Literally. Booing. Boo. Booing. Boo. Someone said, where'd you get this woman? You obviously don't have any children. And I said, hey, 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 everybody, calm down, calm down. This is my house. This is not Jerry Springer's. And this isn't what we do when people come to visit my house. She said, you should be first on the list. She didn't say, abandon your children in the streets. (laughs) Leave your husbands and leave your work, your job. She just said, put yourself first on the list. Why is that? a difficult concept. And I saw that change over the years. I saw, I physically witnessed the change in attitude that women gave to themselves. While Oprah was committing to the new direction, she did respond to some of the criticism that the show was too preachy. She officially changed the show's slogan from change your life to live your best life. The message was tweaked from one focused on being spiritual to one focused on finding the best version of your authentic self. In a word, empowerment. But from the very beginning, that's what Oprah said she wanted the show to be about anyway. One thing I've learned is that no matter how far down you go, and I tell you, I have been down on my knees with the best of you. This clip is from the very first national broadcast back in September 1986. This show... This show always allows people, hopefully, to understand the power they have to change their own lives. If there's Today, threat, most people have a pretty clear idea of what the Oprah Winfrey show was. But it's easy to forget just how much it evolved. Eventually, it found its identity as Live Your Best Life TV. But only after years of exploration, reinvention, trial, and error. So here they were about 15 years in, finally aligned with the vision and purpose that Oprah set for the show from that first national broadcast. In a way, the show had achieved what they set out to do from September 8, 1986. 
But in the new century, The Oprah Winfrey Show would try to outdo itself over and over with elaborate shows and bigger spectacles. But once you've done everything, what else is there to do? We've got 10 more years to go. Next time on Making Oprah, we meet the stars and the excitement is infectious. There were times where I, you know, had a virus. I was so sick. I remember interviewing Christine Aguilera and I was on a stool and I thought, I am hallucinating and I'm going to fall (laughs) off the stool. The staff works hard. I mean, really hard. I really never left. I worked all the time. It was definitely an environment of people who worked a lot. We find out what it takes to score a prime seat in the studio audience. I will admit, we seated that audience with bright colors. It was a very colorful (laughs) It was Skittle Nation. And Oprah gives away some stuff. As lead producer, you provide the script for Oprah. I'm pretty sure I wrote, uh, you get a car. (laughs) Somewhere in there. Making Oprah is a production of WBEZ Chicago. It was really hard to produce shows after that because all the audience wanted cars. I'm Jen White. The producer is still living his best life, Colin McNulty. The executive producers are Ben Calhoun, who still has I'm Every Woman stuck in his head, and Joel Meyer, who's been doing some beta testing for this series. It hasn't been going too well. Well, a house burned down. The viewer did not follow directions, I would like to say. Some of the audio in this episode comes courtesy of Harpo Incorporated. The show was mixed by Joe Dassault. Our digital editor is Trisha Bobita. And our intern is Annie Nguyen, who has watched quite enough Oprah by now. And make sure you're subscribed to Making Oprah on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll be sure not to miss a single episode. While you're there, please give us a rating or review. It really helps. And if you want even more Making Oprah, go to wbez.org slash Oprah.